Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder, Lori LeBay. And for those of you that are new to our show, I always like to tell you a little bit about us and then I will get to our guest here. Um, Alzheimer's Speaks was basically created because my mom had dementia for 30 years. And so as a daughter, I felt lost and disconnected. And so Alzheimer's Speaks is really um, a company now that is, a, is advocacy based and it provides multiple platforms to connect people and to shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. We're also known as a media outlet. We truly believe that by joining forces and having these everyday conversations about dementia and how we care is really the only way we're going to move that bar up and we're going to really make and feel shifts in the world. And at our core, we think collaboration is the only way we're going to win the battle. And I know that that's working thanks to each and every one of you. You see your likes, your clicks, your shares have gotten us recognized as the number one influencer online by Dr. Oz and ShareCare, as an architect of change by Maria Schreiber, and just recently as a health hero by Oprah. And I don't say that to pat us on the back because this is something we share with everybody because we did not do this alone. It was you guys helping get the content out about all these other services that are available to help people and support people uh, to learn how to live graciously with this disease. And so for that, I thank you. And I hope that you'll continue to share our content today. I also want you to keep in mind that maybe you can be our next guest, because again, we believe everyone's voice is important. So if you are, if you are living with a diagnosis of dementia or caring for a loved one, or maybe you're in the field and you, you have a story to tell, you have, you have some you know, kind of passion behind a movement that you want to see change, please reach out to me. We have had researchers, we've had authors, we've had movie directors, we've had people running cross country or cooking across country as advocates. So anything goes because you you can be an inspiration to others. Today, we are um, just thrilled to have with us uh, Erica Ornthal, and she is the founder and president of Chicago Dance Therapy. Erica offers a wide variety of dance activities, and she has lots of groups, including uh, adult day services, <clears throat> where she has worked with people with Alzheimer's and other types of um, brain disorders, like Parkinson's, and she recently added dance movement therapy to, uh, to help with bullying and violence occurring in our schools, which I just think is so, so 
powerful and, and so needed. She's a licensed and professional clinical counselor and board certified dance movement therapist. And yes, there is a dance movement therapist and I can't wait to have her tell us more about that. She received her MA in dance movement therapy and counseling from the Columbia College in Chicago. And she also has um, a BS in psychology from the University of Illinois. And so it's just, uh, it's, it's so important to hear all these aspects that we can apply in our own lives and that we can tap into and learn. So I'm just really excited to have Erica with us. Welcome, Erica. How are you today? Good. How are you? Doing good. Getting ready for another snowstorm here in Minnesota. Oh, so. gosh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Our snow finally melted here in Chicago, but uh, I, I'm sure we'll get more. So. Yep. Yep. We just got nailed with about five inches yesterday and they're talking up to 10 today. So. Wow. Oh my goodness. That's okay. Before I get into our line of questioning, Erica, I always like to ask my guests if they've been personally touched by dementia with maybe a family member or friend. Yeah. So originally, gosh, when I was a kid, I had a great aunt that I don't know if she was, I don't know if she officially was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but now knowing what I know about the illness and the progression of the disease, mm-hmm. um, it wouldn't surprise me if that is what she had. Um, everybody knew her to have uh, poor memory, no short-term memory. I was always prepared to, you know, she won't know who you are, um, you know, don't make her feel bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing is when we did see her, she did know who I was, mm-hmm. but it surprised everybody, you know, because we never saw each other. And for some reason, she would remember who we were. It was, it was crazy. But um, that was my first, I think, familial um, uh, experience, if you will. And then I got a little bit older, high school, maybe even into college. And that aunt was a sister to my grandmother. And my grandmother started to exhibit... I wouldn't say your typical Alzheimer's symptoms, but she definitely had to ha- started to have some dementia, um, short-term memory loss. She would almost have uh, not. It almost seemed more like medication-induced, or mm-hmm. as if there was like some type of chemical imbalance. Um, but again, it was never really diagnosed as Alzheimer's, but people knew that it kind of ran in the family. And, you know, for a while, people just chalk it up, sadly, to old age and senility, which we know isn't true. Um, you know, and I was very close with her. So knowing that sometimes talking on the phone, she wouldn't know who I was or she wouldn't remember that she had grandchildren um, was difficult. And we didn't live very close to one another. So, you know, uh, she didn't always see us when she did. It was usually a good interaction and very, very lovely. But, uh, but as she got older and we saw each other less and less, there was definitely that, that familial connection. Um, and then my grandmother on my other side actually has vascular dementia. So we didn't quite understand or know what was going on. She was a little bit more private and um, I think didn't necessarily let us know what was happening until it became a little bit more of a problem than we realized. And she had suffered a few strokes and um, uh, many strokes as well. But ultimately, she started having trouble with her ADLs, um, couldn't live on her own, needed more help than I think she knew that she needed or wanted. 
um, and fortunately now has a really wonderful support team and is living in um, an independent kind of assisted living facility. So. Wonderful. So you've definitely been touched. And, um, you know, when you're talking um, about the connection and you didn't see each other very often, but it was still there. And, you know, again, it goes back to that, that old well, and that, you know, our memories, I think, are really tied into our emotions and in our moments. And so my guess is you had some really um, great moments with her um, that yeah. made it easier. And it was often those memories that were tied to music and tied to movement. And I think I was doing things with them long before I became a dance therapist that now I see, the, I see tenfold the benefit of, <laughs> um, you know, but it was really in those memories and using songs and familiar places and, um, you know, the joy and the interaction where I think a lot of those memories really stuck. Yep. Yep, I agree. Why don't you explain to people exactly what is movement in dance therapy? Because a lot of us just kind of move with the groove and, you know, do that kind of stuff, but we don't really know um, the purposefulness of it and, and what it can do for us. Yeah. So dance movement therapy at its very core is a psychotherapy. Oftentimes in this, um, in this field, in this, I guess, uh, population, if you will, people are more familiar with music therapy. And so there's music therapy, there's art therapy, there's drama therapy, and there's dance therapy. So we're really more represented by the modality rather than what we actually do. We do incorporate dance, but first and foremost, it's a psychotherapy that uses movement to enhance social skills, cognitive abilities, social interactions, um, even identity and self-esteem, confidence. It's what we call a mind-body-centered psychotherapy. So especially when individuals can't rely on language or they're losing their traditional language skills, we find that by going into the body, nonverbal communication, body language, meeting somebody in their movements, even if it's just postural or gestural, has a greater ability to connect and to um, allow us to understand what that person's going through. Because often there are a lot of behaviors and there are a lot of symptoms that come up that aren't necessarily talk through, you know, something we can talk through or something that we can really understand without getting into that person's being, without getting into their body. So it does incorporate movement and it does incorporate dance depending on the client and the group um, but oftentimes it's also just about recognizing somebody's body habits or their patterns it's noticing in their body when they're getting agitated before it becomes a problem um, I used to work in activities and oftentimes it was about noticing somebody's body posture so that we could almost prevent or intervene before they got sent out to a psych hospital, because we know that once that person is sent out, when they come back, they're usually not the same. And it's very hard to get back to that level of functioning. Yeah, very, very true. Um, do you see this, this being a good therapy for those, you know, with dementia and, um, you know, various, well, various forms of dementia, like Alzheimer's, Lewy body, have you seen it work better for some than none? Or is this something that just really works for everybody? You know, up to this point, I haven't seen 
I haven't had anybody not connect or benefit from movement therapy. It's not the, I wouldn't say it's a therapy for everybody, but because we are all moving, everybody can participate, right? People respond differently to different therapies. So I've had clients where they manage, they do pretty well in movement, but they really, really do well in music therapy or they really, really do well in art therapy. And that's okay. Um, I think the idea is that we're looking for creativity. We're trying to enhance imagination. We're touching the person and the soul of the individual, not the disease, and treating the person and the soul, not just the disease, and that we're looking outside of the box. So it's very rare to have somebody say, this didn't work for mom or this didn't work for dad. You know, we're done. Uh, I tend to start seeing individuals, and really what happens is they either you know, move out of the area because they need to live closer to family or, you know, I, live, I, I work with individuals that are elderly, 80, 90, some people in their hundreds, and, and they pass on. And so it, it really is something I think that works for everybody. We have to kind of break down what we think of as dance, right? Now, if people say, oh, mom can't even walk. How is she going to participate in dance therapy? Um, and that's when I say, Let's just try it, right? I've worked with people that are laying down. I mean, they're bed bound and they're still moving and there's still some way to touch and connect to them. And so, you know, I really do believe everybody can benefit from it. Um, does it touch everybody the same way? No, but we're finding that a lot of these, even in-home or assisted cares, memory cares, they're starting to, to turn. They're starting to incorporate these creative arts therapies because they know that it's a way of improving quality of life. Yeah, I remember, you know, my mom was in the nursing home and <clears throat> we used to dance. And then um, and then she was wheelchair bound. So then, you know, I danced with her while she's in a wheelchair. And, you know, then that got a little bit, <clears throat> a little bit much. And so then we would just kind of hand dance. And then at the end, we were just finger dancing, mm -hmm. you know, and just moving. And, and But she just loved it. And it was, I think, I think sometimes people forget the importance of the touch and, and, you know, when you're moving with somebody else, there's just an, another level of engagement that, that people don't even realize because we, we're not real conscious walking around this world, on mm -hmm. how we communicate with one another. Yeah. And, and so, and then, you know, you add the, the music with that, you know, there's just, there's, it's just so powerful mm -hmm. and, and it takes, to me, it takes some of the scary out for for people in terms of engaging because, um, you know, we have this this thing called caregiver where mm -hmm. it says we're giving everything away, we're not getting anything back, and now all of a sudden it it helps us get back into um, our, our relationship that can be fun and fulfilling mm -hmm. and giving both ways. Yeah. And I, I think that that's such a, a critical aspect that is long forgotten. And, you know, we just need to kind of reawaken everybody through this. And I think that the music um, movement that's going on will help. But again, there's just so much more than just the singing. Because if you look at people listening to that music, their toes are tapping, their heads are bopping, their hands are clapping. And so, I mean, some will pop out of their chair and dance, you know, right. if, if, they, <laughs> if they feel that that's allowed or, or acceptable. Um, right, but I think people, their identity is tied to dance. Mm -hmm. You know, when they hear music, they, it, 
sends them back to a time when they were partner dancing, when they were swing dancing, when they were jitterbugging, you know, so, so for some people, it really is tapping into their identity because they identify with being a mover, a dancer. But what you're saying also is just that we are always in our bodies. We're always moving. And so just another way of connecting and being present is in the body. And that can be, like you said, finger dancing, tapping our toes. There's, um, there's a connection there. The soul, um, I think it was Mayim Bialik just said, the soul that loves music never dies. Mm-hmm. And it's so true because you might not be 100% aware cognitively, but your soul is there. And if it connects to music or movement, it will respond. Mm-hmm. So when you do your therapy, do you always use music, you know, in the background or do you just guide people sometimes? What's... Um, it really depends. You know, uh, more often than not, when we do group therapy, especially if the group is moderate to severe in their diagnosis, sometimes the music is kind of what opens the door. Mm-hmm. So it might be difficult for me to say, well, I can say it. It might be difficult for people to follow along if I say, let's take a deep breath. But if I put on a song that allows for movement of breath, they do it without cueing. And so then I can say, I'm just noticing we took a beautifully deep breath. Let's try that again. Or we can use cues like, remember when you're at the doctor and he put, you know, he's checking your heartbeat. Let's take a nice deep breath and just seeing the movement of people's chest, knowing that they're following the cue. Mm-hmm. Um, so music is definitely powerful in that sense. You know, when I use music as a movement therapist, I, I find myself using music to match the energy of the room, not necessarily, especially like a music therapist would in terms of like interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it might end up being a song that has words that they are very familiar with and all of a sudden they're singing when really all I was doing was trying to just match maybe the lull or the really, really high agitation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So it kind of depends. If I walk in and a group is already very energized, I can actually start without any music at all. And then I just use music to support the theme development and where we see the group going. If I come in and the group is just super low energy. I went into a group yesterday, almost everybody was sleeping. Just putting on some calming music allows them to reorient and enter the room and open their eyes. And then I can begin the work. Yeah. Yeah. Versus something loud and banging that's just right. Right. Pops them out and yeah, isn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't give them a smooth transition there. Right. Do you, with your music and and dance or um, movement and dance therapy, do you use props at all? You know, what types of props? Yeah, so I, I'm, not a, I'm not the type of dance therapist that uses props a lot, but I do find a few props that, especially for individuals with cognitive disorders or dementia, that really help in terms of connection. Um, so I'm not sure if you're familiar, there's a, a, a company called Octaband, which was actually created by Donna Newman Bluestein. She, she herself is a dance movement therapist. And so I, I use that. Um, that's kind of my go-to engagement prop. Okay. <laughs> um, because uh, I don't know if the audience is familiar with it, but it has a centralized, it, it's all made out of Lycra. 
And in the center, it's connected. It's this big circle. And then it has um, bands that are sewn that stretch out from that, that cohesive circle. And so everybody's connected, but on the outside, it really looks like you can kind of do your own thing. You're holding on to a band. You can circle it. You can stretch it. And I love that people can be independent, but also connected at the same time. So I use that um, usually, I would say, at least once a week, depending on where I'm going and what group we're doing. Um, other props I've used are, you know, age-appropriate parachutes, those really big parachutes, colorful parachutes. Again, in an, in an appropriate manner, right? We're not looking to infantilize or, um, you know, make people feel less than. It's not connected with, you know, uh, ABC songs or Twinkle Twinkle. It's, it's very age appropriate. But when they use it, it really, like, it brings joy to their faces. I think they remember a time when we all used it as children. And this, uh, this playful energy comes out. Um, balloons I find are really wonderful because in move, in terms of movement therapy, we talk about direct movement, right? Being very direct, like a pointing. So like a popping a bubble, um, balloons, because they have that airy lightness about them. They're non-threatening. Um, for the most part, I've thankfully knock on wood, haven't had one pop in anybody's face. <laughs> so watch now, now I'll have to watch out for that. But, um, you know, it's very gentle. It's not threatening. It comes at them very slowly. And then they can really, like, smack it, you know, or tap it or poke it. Um, not often, but I've used scarves, again, for the same reason. It's an extension of their own hand. So mm -hmm. if they're not moving the way that they think they should or that they want to, the scarf will. Um, we've thrown in other props from time to time. Shakers. Uh, if I go to a facility that has a box of music instrument, you know, musical instruments, we can use those. So it's very much about being in the moment and just noticing as the therapist, hmm, what would facilitate this movement more? Oh, I brought scarves. Let's try that. Or, oh, we're having a really hard time engaging today and connecting. Let's bring out the Octaband. So it's kind of an in-the-moment intervention. I don't always plan ahead or know if I'm going to use it. Okay. Um, with your therapy, do you, do you try to pull them out in, in terms of discussion, um, you know, or kind of like a, a talk therapy added to that as well? I do. And I think, again, that's not necessarily um, a, a – well, it is a component of movement therapy – it's not necessarily, oh, it's, it's only a dance therapy session if you're incorporating that. Um, it's my style too, though. So even for individuals that are very, very advanced in their dementia, I give them the opportunity um, at least to try to answer a few questions. And if they can't, that's okay. If they can, more often than not, it's surprising to all of us, you know, because again, there's a person in there that has wisdom and and ideas and things to share. So what I find is we start in the movement and then I like to think of movement as a key that unlocks potential for the brain. And, you know, movement itself allows us to flow where we increase our flexibility, we increase our range of motion, which also enhances our ability to think and the flow of our thoughts and how connected we are to our thoughts. So when I find that everybody's kind of danced, they need a break, <laughs> right? Even I need a break. I'm like, I got to catch my breath, you guys. Okay, so we sit down, and it's usually when I try to find, either pull back a theme that we've talked about or that's come up, 
Um, maybe because of a song that we played or somebody might say, oh, it's my birthday. Oh, you know, oh, let's talk about birthdays. Everybody got really excited. Uh, when are your birthdays? And I might hear somebody say something or I will actually call somebody out, you know, and say, you know, John, what, when is your birthday? Maybe he knows, maybe he doesn't. Do you enjoy celebrating your birthday? It's important to me that they have a voice, that they're able to say what they do like, what they don't like, that there's nobody else telling them right from wrong. And if they verbalize it, great. Sometimes it's just a look, you know, they get very excited or they roll their eyes and everybody understands, you know, it's like, oh yeah, been there. I know exactly what you're saying. (laughs) Um, So I do, I try to really try to bring in some type of verbal processing, usually around the middle when we need a break from our bodies and just catch our breath. And then once the theme and the, and the, um, the talking is kind of exhausted, right? Everybody is either disengaging or we're just running out of things to verbally say. Uh, we go back into the body and that's usually when we do a little bit of a cool down. Um, and, um, and I like to leave them in their bodies so that whatever the next thing they're engaging in, or if they have family coming in, um, they're in a really good space. They're in their bodies, not in, not in just their thoughts, which can be very anxiety provoking. Okay. Have you found that there's a better time of day or is that really individualized depending on the the client? It is really individualized. I mean, typically I tend to see morning, you know, morning seems to be the best. If somebody wakes up around nine or nine 30, 10 30, 11 o'clock seems to be like optimal, especially because we, we tend to not be dealing with sundowning. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there are only so many 10 thirties in my week. So, <laughs> you know, if, if places or people are calling, um, I do have quite a few groups that will do after lunch, which is mm-hmm. a hard time. But I find that if we do it enough, they, they get the habit down. They know movement therapy is coming. It might take a little bit more effort on my part, but it's still just as successful. I don't always like to use that word, but there's still meaning to it. And sometimes even more so because that person wouldn't have done anything after lunch. Maybe they would have fallen asleep in their chair for an hour. And instead we were able to engage them and then they're ready to go for the next program. Or if they're at home, they're ready to go see that doctor that they usually hate mm-hmm. or it's difficult to get them, you know, into the car. Mm-hmm. But we've managed to make a little bit more of a transition time. So typically, like weekday mornings, we do some afternoons. I don't see anybody in the evenings. I don't see anybody um, right before dinner time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only time that we've found that that is beneficial is if we can go into, say, like a facility where sundowning is a real um, issue in the milieu and we can come in and kind of uh, almost do like crisis intervention, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of wander around a floor that has a lot of behaviors where maybe CNAs aren't um, able to get to everybody or, you know, they're busy setting the table. Who's going to really engage the participants Mm -hmm. or the residents. We can come in and allow for that one-on-one time or engage the residents in a meaningful way to divert their attention in a sense and really get them focused again on their bodies and less on, you know, when am I going home? I need to pick up my children. Where am I? When can I leave type of thing? Okay. Well, that makes sense. I was going to ask in terms of 
Um, if you're in a community setting, because I've seen this so many times where somebody might be doing a one-on-one -on -one, and mm -hmm. then there's just great interest and people just kind of start gathering around. Because mm -hmm. um, sometimes I know it's hard in a community to get the group together and sometimes just starting pulls people out and and you know you can just kind of see them watching and then you can invite them in and then it's their idea uh -huh. you know to be there do, do you see that happening very often or um yes and no i mean most of the places that i've been in i've i've gone for some time and so uh -huh. the staff and families that come to visit know that we're coming Mm -hmm. And so more often than not, when we're there, there is a circle waiting for us. You okay. know, they might not, the, the participants might not always know what's happening, but the family mm -hmm. members do, the care partners, they're like, oh, we were waiting for you. Uh -huh. <laughs> we're ready for you. Um, but there's always going to be people that are waking up from a nap or just finishing food and always visitors. You know, there's always people mm -hmm. kind of wandering around. And so we always, even though we create a circle um, for optimal engagement, we always leave chairs open. We always leave the space for people to come in. They can walk through the circle. They can engage with us for a moment and then leave. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard because I always say it's an open group in a closed facility. <laughs> so everybody's welcome. People can come and go as they need to. Uh, but what we find more often than not is that when people come in, they stay. You know, even if they're not ones to engage for 60 minutes in anything, they most likely will engage in music and movement for the entire time. And maybe then some it's, I ha I'm the one that has to leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's an upbeat social thing and just yeah. one of those things that's been in our lives all along. And a lot of times there'll be, you know, music and stuff playing in the background, but when you have people engaged to it and specific to it and, and, you know, pulling one another out, I would imagine that that alleviates some of the, um, the isolation and loneliness that people can feel. Do you, do you feel that your therapy can really help um, reduce that? Absolutely. So not only isolation, you know, from the rest of the group, isolation from, you know, family, isolation from community, uh, no matter how long they've lived there. Some of some individuals acclimate very well. Some of them do. And then there's a little bit of a regression and, um, you know, then some of them never really acclimate because they're always kind of in this limbo, right? Mm -hmm. this is my home, I want to go home. Um, and so I think that there's so many opportunities because one, they're able to connect to my, to myself, to the therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, they're able to find a new way to connect with their care partners that come and participate mm -hmm. and also to the staff. You know, I love when staff comes in and participates with us, not just for the residents, but for themselves, because they leave with newfound energy, they get a little bit of a respite, they smile more, everybody just feels a little bit more relaxed. And we've even had, you know, uh, let's say a physical therapist comes in for an appointment, that can be very difficult. They'll stay and participate for a little bit or allow their client or patient to stay for movement therapy, come back, and that person is more um, amenable, amenable, like is more open to going with them or walking up and down the hallway, whereas before maybe they wouldn't have wanted to. Mm -hmm. So it does. It allows for more connection. It takes them out of themselves. Uh, they start to realize that there are people around them, right? It's that awareness piece that you had mentioned at the beginning that we all need more of. Mm -hmm. um, 
and so, yeah, I think for, for me, number one is more often is most often that feeling of isolation and how can we allow people to feel more connected, not just to people around them, but to themselves too. And that's a lot of what movement therapy is. It's validating and supporting our own existence through our bodies. Yeah. Well, and plus just the physical movement in terms of, uh, and not that you're doing, you know, weight training or anything like that, <laughs> but just, um, just that flexibility, you know, mm-hmm. the, there's the old saying, you know, um, use it or lose it type deal, Yeah. Um, which I, I know I'm pushing 60 now and I can feel a difference. And I know I got to get my butt up moving more than I should because I'm sitting at my computer all the time. And and uh, and then I, I think the other thing that um, I really like about movement and dance therapy, too, is just the element of, of play and fun and that nothing is really wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's no matter how you move, it's it's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah and, there's, no, there's no I always tell people, I'm like, there's no there's no right or wrong. You know, mm-hmm. if you're doing it and it's in your body and it's safe and you're not harming yourself or anybody else, yeah. then do it. (laughs) I'm not here to tell you how to do it. I'm just here to be with you while you do it. Yeah. And it, um, you know, with dementia, what I found, um, with my mom was, you know, she kind of taught me how to play again Mm -hmm. and to not worry about being judged, Mm. you know, really letting go and being in the moment. And I think to me, that's one of the biggest gifts that, you know, dementia gives us is, is their filters are gone and they're not, they're not so worried about what you think anymore. And that, you know, when you can get into that space, and I, I think I, I think all of us need to get into that space more, life becomes easier. Life becomes more joyful. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that playfulness, you know, just that, that silliness and being able to laugh or smile, um, I mean, that's huge. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that just changes your, your chemistry in your body and in your mind, I think you know, of what's going on around you. And that's, that's a very, very powerful tool um, that we don't tap into near as much as we should. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you, you mentioned that you work with groups and you, it sounded like you do some one-on-one so somebody could hire you to come into their home as well. Is that correct? Or Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's, that's actually where I started. Um, I was, again, working in, uh, in activities and in, in an assisted living slash memory care facility in Chicago. And I had an individual reach out to me, you know, and um, his, his mother was, uh, was obese. So mm-hmm. she was mobile, but it was hard for her to get places. And um, originally uh, her church was across the street, but unfortunately the congregation did not approve of her behaviors. She would sing all the time and dance in the pews and, it was it was distracting for a lot of the um, congregants, and so he said, "Could you recreate that for her in our living room? You know, like could you bring the church to her, mm-hmm. um, even though we're completely different religions? And um, you know, it, it was nothing about religion; it was about recreating a movement and a and a songful experience, um, and bringing whatever God was in to her living room for her, and." Uh, so that's kind of how it started. I was like, oh, maybe I could do in-home therapy mm-hmm. sure. at a time when people weren't doing in-home therapy. Um, and so that tends to be like what I really love to do. I love to be invited into people's homes because it's so private and it's so intimate and you get to see it's an honor for people to invite you into their mm-hmm. home because 
it's, it can be vulnerable. You, you are, you're seeing, a, you know, who they are. You're seeing how they live. Mm-hmm. And that's something I really enjoy. So yes, we, uh, we go into, I go into people's homes. Um, you know, then if they transition to a facility, we often kind of move with them, if you will. Um, and then for people who are already in a facility, I've gone in and done one-on-ones with them. Um, or we put together a group through the facility so that ideally the facility's budget pays for it rather than the individual. Mm-hmm. Well, what um, great insights from the sun to reach out to you and, and to say, you know, this is important. She, she needs this. We need to somehow recreate that. And I, I think so many times there's things that, that family and staff can do to re- recreate a moment if they would just give their, themselves permission right to to figure out how to do that cuz you don't have to do it all it doesn't have to be ex- it exactly it's about that feeling mm-hmm. you know it's about that connection and uh, you know we were taught that through uh, um an experience when my mom was in the nursing home they had like spa day and they you know they did a little bit of everything and they had they had music and they had hors d'oeuvres and they did their nails and their hair and their makeup and, and the whole nine yards um and you know my mom said her favorite thing was going in the whirlpool tub <laughs> and you know that's something we couldn't do but you know from that going forward i always went with lotion in my purse so that I could massage her hands and her feet. Mm-hmm. My daughter always went with nail polish. That was her thing. And so it was taking those little things and just recreating them. You know, my brothers, they could push a button for the music, you know. And so it was just whatever we were comfortable with, taking a portion of that and really connecting with it. And like you said, it's just, it, it's so intimate, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a, it's a whole nother level of experience. Um, yeah. And, and words don't always have to be exchanged and it doesn't have to be big movement. Sometimes it's just sitting next to somebody, you know, like it said, doing the finger dance or whatever. That's just so powerful. Right. Um, and so meaningful. Yeah. And and meeting, you know, I try to tell people it's like, it's about their movement. It's not about ours, Mm -hmm. you know, so meeting them in that movement, if it's just mirroring how they're sitting, you know, Mm -hmm. or if somebody is in a wheelchair, it's really important that you're on eye level with them, you know, because if you're standing over them, whether you mean to or not, it can feel deep, deep. I don't even know. It it can feel uh, minimizing, you Mm -hmm. know, or it can feel like a power differential. Um, you know, and, and a relationship that might be very close can all of a sudden feel very threatened. So we really have to be aware of how we are presenting our bodies in front of them and also just being more attuned and attentive to what their bodies are showing us. You know, if if they look very agitated and you're trying to, you know, enforce a very calming environment, that might to us look like we're trying to do the best we can, but sometimes it's better to actually meet them in that discomfort and in that agitation, which is, you know, as therapists, kind of our bread and butter, um, because they just want to be validated and supported in what they're feeling, not made to feel like they have to minimize it or that it doesn't matter. Yeah. And it's not always about fixing it. Right. It's about acknowledging 
Exactly. Yeah. You know, because um, feelings are just, I mean, they're waves of emotion that are constantly changing within us, mm-hmm. but we can't, um, you know, and I'm no therapist, but th- my belief is you, you can't get to the other side of that feeling if you don't acknowledge it yourself right. and if you that's, don't feel it. Yeah, that's and, number one. You have yeah. to acknowledge it. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we can help them through that process, because there's nothing worse than you're ready, you know, just and everybody goes through this, you're ready to acknowledge a feeling. And then everyone else is denying it around you. Well, then it pulls you right back into it again. But you know, you're, you're kind of in that cycle. And so it just makes sense. (laughs) Right. Um, Well, and that happens, you know, um, we might not think of it as an emotion, but I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, how many times have we gone to visit a loved one or you know, if you're a staff member, you're walking into a facility and there's bound to be somebody that says, I want to go home. Mm -hmm. I want to go home. And, you know, as staff, even as family, maybe you get overwhelmed or you're tired of hearing it. And the words, you are home, come out, right? It's very frustrating on a lot of levels, but it doesn't always support that person. And we have to think about the emotion behind it. Are they scared? Mm -hmm. Are they confused? Are we sad? Um, addressing that emotion first and foremost is really what's going to allow that emotion to shift and that behavior to change rather than you denying it and saying, stop, you're already home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, thinking, you know, I'm not in that position, but just thinking about how that would feel, especially on a body level, would, yeah, feel very minimizing and pr- probably hurtful. So, like you said, really acknowledging the emotions, even behind some of the, quote, behaviors mm-hmm. that we see is really important so that we can be on, um, you know, an understanding more compassionate level with the people that we care for. Yeah. And if we look at those kind of behaviors as really triggers mm-hmm. um, or signals for us to dig deeper to what I call consciously care, uh-huh. you know, go another level. Yeah. Because this is the surface, <laughs> and there's a lot more going on down here. And that's where our connections become so powerful. And, um, you know, they, I, I think it's at that level where souls are really filled, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you, you get this graciousness, um, and there's just this honoring one another. Mm-hmm. And we all want to feel honored and accepted and purposeful and belong and, a you know, person with dementia is absolutely no different. Hmm. And, and the lessons I think that they teach us are applicable to all of life if we choose to apply them. I completely agree. Completely agree. You know, it's, I think there's also this, um, it's oftentimes it's difficult because we as either the care partners or family members, we have to we have to really change the connection and the relationship that we've known perhaps all of our lives, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to let go of the person you knew they were. They're still there. But you know, if, if the way you need to connect to them is different because their, their dementia is affecting the way you would traditionally connect or communicate, um, kind of up to us to think out of the box, right? If we want to, if we want to put in that effort, um, it can be very sad and lonely and isolating otherwise, or even harder to watch that individual go down that path. Mm -hmm. And like you said, if we can kind of shift our perspective or engage in play or, you know, use music or movement, or as you mentioned, kind of giving different family members, different jobs, Mm -hmm then they can still feel connected and still hopefully have meaningful engagements 
until that person, you know, is no longer on this earth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for the care partners to feel purposeful and filled, I think is good. And Mm -hmm. to let them know it's okay to put your guard down and enjoy a moment. Mm -hmm. It's not all about this. And I mean, and I fell into that trap of being so task oriented. I wasn't, I wasn't enjoying the moment. I, I didn't feel like there was time Mm -hmm. to have fun. And it's like, you've got to wrap that into your process or you're going to get burnt out. Yeah, You're all going to get burnt out and um, not give up your relationship to this disease. You know, um, put that in the, in the forefront. Well, I, yeah. I absolutely adore the work that you're doing and I think it's really, really powerful. Well, um, I feel the same way about you. Keep, you know, doing what you're doing because it's just, you know, awareness is key and the fact that people are, recognizing what you've created is just, it's just, I think it's just the tip, you know, it's just the stepping stone. Like where mm-hmm. you're, you're starting something that we all need to be a part of. So I yeah. appreciate that. Well, and that's our goal is to just to connect people, get them thinking outside the box and empower them to, to know there are a lot more resources than what you think, mm-hmm. you know, are out there and, and you can twist and turn and, and be empowered by what you here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, granted you're a therapist, but there's some of this stuff that they can apply at home on their own too. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think um, <laughs> just very quickly, there is a difference between dance therapy and dance as a therapy or therapeutic mm-hmm. dance. Mm-hmm. But anybody can turn on some music. Anybody can start moving and safely acknowledging how the person they're caring for is in their own body. Are they tapping their toes? Like you said, finger dance Mm -hmm. or, you know, a a gesture of the head, excuse me. So you don't have to be a therapist to incorporate movement techniques into your care relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as you mentioned, if you're looking for uh, respite from those Mm -hmm. feelings or, you know, needing somebody to kind of be with or, help with some of these, again, quote, triggers or like behaviors. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, when the therapy is more, um, more warranted. But Mm -hmm. yes, I mean, I encourage people all the time, start to look at your bodies differently, become more aware of your own personal movements and the person that you're caring for, because you can start doing that right now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, talking about movement, it just, I got, I almost burst out laughing because it, it, it hit a, hit a memory for me. And I remember my mom who was not very mobile and in her wheelchair doing a shimmy. I mean, just, oh. I mean, a major shimmy. And it's like, <laughs> I didn't even know my mom could move. I mean, and I can't do it. And and it was just like, and then, you know, then she was doing it more often and, and everybody just broke up because it was, I mean, she was doing it really, really good. And it was like, we're the, where the heck did that come from? I've never <laughs> in my life seen her do that. Right. You know, funny. and um, but you know, she was there and in the moment it was fun and she, you know, no, she wasn't having a seizure. You know, she was right. right. She, she intentionally meant to do that. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it was perfect. It was perfect, yeah. but it was like, what a great memory. And that, that'll never leave me, you know, yeah. that'll just that- never, never leave me. Yeah. So I think, I think, um, I think the movement and the dance um, and music, all of that uh, has such an ability to create such great joy and such simple pleasures. Yeah. And it's such a, it's, it's another way of understanding somebody, you know, I think we've all had moments where you're introduced to somebody or, you know, 
you, you come across somebody and based off of their movements, you can almost tell what kind of person they are, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of job they might do or, um, you know, uh, personality wise, how rigid or how, how flexible they might be in their thinking. And it's not all that different with our residents and our clients. You know, I don't, I don't ask, I don't get to see, um, charts on everyone. I don't know people's backgrounds, but when I meet certain people, I can tell he was a businessman in his life, wasn't he? Or I, did he have, you know, did he own a law firm or, oh, this person might've been, you know, um, uh, a homemaker or, you know, really took pride in raising their family. Like you can tell in their movements, again, their personality and a lot of their life experience. And mm-hmm. so just like maybe with your mom's shimmy, we start to recognize people in the, in the different facilities by the way they move. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like instead of saying your name, the introduction becomes their movement. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, we're so-and-so. I, you know, I'm so enjoying seeing her moving her head today. Or we have some ladies that if we could be moving our feet, but they're always moving their shoulders in this like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm present. Yep. <laughs> well, and then the facial expressions <laughs> that go with all that, yes. you know, and, and you can just, Um, yeah, you can just see it. You can just, you can see that personality without a word being said. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Another great way to, uh, to communicate. Um, Erica, do you want to let people know what the best way is to get a hold of you? Uh, sure. So they can go to our website. It's chicagodancetherapy.com. Um, I love to answer emails, questions. People can reach out. I'm pretty good about getting back to people um, within a, you know, a day or two. Um, so they can always email me at Erica, E-R-I-C-A, at chicagodancetherapy.com. And we're on all the social medias, so uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So if people just want to follow what we're doing or just want to be a little bit more present to what we're doing in the community, you can follow us along there. Wonderful. And then is there a phone number or do you prefer email contact? Yeah, no, people can contact us through phone. It's uh, uh, 847-848-0697. Okay, well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And again, to our audience, you know, why don't you go to Erica's uh, website and, and Facebook page and go ahead and follow her and like her and share that information, you know, with your spheres. Um, and we hope you do that as well with Alzheimer's Speaks. Thanks so much for joining us today. Till next time. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.